Good morning. You may be seated. It is so nice to see you all here this morning on this uh, worst of all holidays, you know, time change Sunday. It is, it might be my least favorite day of the year. Um, every year it catches me off guard, and every year I say the same thing. We should just go ahead and abolish this part of it. You know, instead we should just go ahead and go back another hour, you know, and just do that twice a year. I, I think that would solve all the world's problems, give everyone an extra hour of sleep every six months, and we'd be great. Unfortunately, we know that that's not uh, how it works, that uh, as good as that would be, it would not solve all of our problems. Um, so... We have been in the midst of a kind of an impromptu series uh, on the doctrines of, of grace. And so I preached two weeks ago on Zechariah chapter 3, and we went over justification and sanctification and kind of how they work together and how our sanctification is based on our justification. And then last week, we went over Matthew chapter 22, and we looked at effectual calling and how it is God that calls, it's God that always initiates, and He's the one who calls us to Him. And we <clears throat> touched on regeneration during that sermon, but it was just a, a kind of a light touch. But effectual calling and regeneration go hand in hand. You can't really have one without the other. And so today we're going to be talking about regeneration and we're going to be turning to Ezekiel chapter 36 for this. This is probably the only chapter in Ezekiel that you might know, but it's a great chapter. So let's read God's word. Please stand. It's Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 32. Therefore, Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer disgrace of famine among the nations." Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. 
It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But not God's word. It stands forever, so let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we do thank you for this great text. We thank you for your word that you have sent to us. Lord, we pray that you help us by your spirit to hear you today as you speak to us. That as we look at this, uh, this great reality, the regeneration of the heart and your work in the believer, that you use that to edify us. Direct our eyes constantly to our Savior, Jesus. It is in his sweet and precious name that we pray. Amen. So, sorry, I still have a dry throat. It's hanging on from last week. So, please excuse my sipping the water. Um, Ezekiel is one of my favorite books. In fact, it's kind of become uh, a joke in between myself and... Uh, my family, and Jonathan Doors, who led me through seminary, you know, because every little class that we would have in seminary, he would bring up a topic, and I'd be like, oh, you see that in Ezekiel. And I love Ezekiel because it is so weird. You know, it is one of the weirdest books in the entirety of the Bible. It's confusing. You actually have to delve into it pretty deeply in order to understand it. And you have to know your Bible pretty well in order to understand it. In fact, even the rabbinical tradition back in the day, you know, around the time of Jesus, said that, you know, you weren't really supposed to study Ezekiel until you were in your mid-30s because they didn't think you had enough experience. They didn't think that you knew your Bible well enough in order to come away with good truth from it. But, man, it has some amazing passages in it. It has some of the best passages in the Old Testament. You know, we see in here the passage that we just read where, you know, the believer is given a new heart, exchanging a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. And we also see right at the beginning this picture of Jesus who is larger than life. And then at the end we see this awesome picture of the river of life that's flowing out of the temple. And it's watering the nations and bringing life to the entire world. It is an amazing book. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do, and maybe this might encourage you to read it. But in order to understand it, like I said, you, you really do have to know your Bible, and you have to know a little bit of the history of the, the Hebrew people at this time. You know, this was written uh, a little bit before... Zechariah, you know, Zechariah that I preached on two weeks ago was written on right after the exile. They had just uh, come back into the land and they were rebuilding the temple. This happens uh, before that. It's about 590 B.C. and it happens while they are going into the exile. And in it, you know, we see this outline of specific charges that God has against his people, ways that they've broken the law, ways that he's explaining to them why they're going into exile. 
And he uses Ezekiel to do it, and he, he does it in all sorts of very strange, odd ways. He gives Ezekiel uh, strange visions and strange instructions, like Ezekiel can't, can't eat any bread unless it's baked over dung. Um, although God does make a concession. You can use animal dung. <laughs> An odd concession. And, you know, we see God here leave the temple and leave Jerusalem for destruction. And, you know, the question that these people in exile have are, is God done with Israel? Is God done with his people? And the answer right out the gates of the book is no. It has to be no. Because Ezekiel is sent as a prophet to the people in exile. He is with them in exile. And his first vision is a vision of Jesus who is riding this huge chariot that has angels for wheels. Yes, it's weird. And he's rolling into Babylon after his people, symbolically setting his presence upon his people in exile. And so there is another question, though, that they have that's kind of behind this one. You know, this keeps happening to us. We keep going off into sin. We keep being disciplined for it. We keep not obeying the law. Why is it that we can't obey the law? In fact, Moses even prophesied way back in the Pentateuch. He prophesied about the exile, said exactly what was going to happen. And yet, they cast that aside. Why can't we obey the law? Why can't we obey the Lord? How is it that we can please the Lord? Those are the questions that they're having. And, you know, we have similar questions today. All of us do. You know, why is it that we keep on sinning? Why is it that, you know, we're saved and everything is so clear to us, but it's not clear to our neighbors who aren't saved? How is it that we can please God and today we're going to look at how God answers those questions through this doctrine of regeneration that we see in Ezekiel 36. And we're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at the necessity of regeneration. We're going to look at what happens in regeneration inside the believer. And then we're going to look at just kind of the outworkings, how this works itself out in the life of the believer as they follow God. So... You know, why is regeneration needed? What's the necessity of it? Let's look at verse 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when, I when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So, what's he saying? He's saying that the Israelites have profaned his name, that they are living their life as a city set on a hill. And, you know, this comes out in many of the other prophets. And as they are living their lives, they're actually more evil than the other countries around them. And what they are showing is that they have a complete disrespect for God. 
They are profaning his name. They are making his name, you know, a mockery. And so, how are they profaning his name? Well, we actually have to look back just a little bit to verse 17. He says, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and deeds. Their ways before me were <clears throat> like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Now, that's a little bit graphic, but you, again, you have to know your Old Testament. This was not a sin, but there were many things in the Old Testament that made you unclean. There were many cleanliness laws. And if you were unclean for any reason, you couldn't go before God. And he's saying that their deeds and their ways were making them unclean. It, it was profaning his name among the nations. You know, he gave them the commandments. He gave them the law, but they didn't keep it. And this is contrasting with, you know, he says they didn't keep his ways. And they profaned, uh, they profaned what he had already done in them, profaned the deeds that he had already worked. And so, again and again, in small ways, in large ways, they broke his commandments. And the question becomes, why? Why didn't they keep the law? They had all of these laws, and they seemed pretty simple to obey. You know, it seemed pretty easy. He listed it out for them, and when they broke it, he actually provided a way for them to, to make atonement and get back in his good graces, so to speak to cleanse themselves from their sin. And yet, they didn't keep the law. And they had all these promises too, along with the law and the commandments that he had given. They had, you know, these good promises that were the blessings of God, that if they obeyed the law, things would go well for them. They would prosper, be fruitful, and multiply. And they would reap his blessings generation after generation. And they also had these bad promises as well, you know, these covenant curses that as they broke the law, they would be invoking a curse upon themselves. And as they invoke a curse upon themselves, they come under his wrath and his judgment. They had every incentive to keep the law. And they had every disincentive to break the law. So why didn't they keep it? And to understand that, we kind of have to go back in time to the fall. To Genesis chapter 3, you know, in the fall, Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, they were broken. You know, and it didn't just affect them. It was them and all of their progeny, which means all of the human race by natural descent, by natural generation, everybody was affected by this. They were broken. In fact, in Genesis 6, just a few chapters after Genesis chapter 3, uh, that's obvious. I didn't have to make that statement. <laughs> you can count. <laughs> he says this, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. This is the doctrine of the total depravity. And total depravity if you don't know what it is, it doesn't mean that everybody is as bad as they are, as bad as they could be. It does mean that evil and sin has infected every part of your being. 
Every part of the being of every person on the face of the planet has been infected with sin. And so, at the fall, they came under a curse. And under this curse, they had to live a life where creation itself was in rebellion against them. They lived a life of <clears throat> misery, essentially, whereas they had been in paradise. And in order to deal with this misery, they would turn to sin again and again because all of their thoughts and intentions were only evil all the time. And so God cast them out of the garden, and they were alienated from his presence, and they're spiritually dead. And what he had said in Genesis chapter 2 about what would happen when they ate the fruit became spiritually true of them. They died. They're unable to obey. Go back to last week, the parable of the wedding feast. What did we see in the parable of the wedding feast? The gospel call goes out to everybody at the beginning, and nobody comes. Nobody responds because dead people can't respond. And so R.C. Sproul, you know, he, he picks up this analogy from uh, Arminian circles that, and he kind of critiques it. You know, and this analogy, I'm sure you've heard it, is that, you know, the world is like a burning building, and you're in a burning building. And Jesus is at the door, and he's knocking. And all you have to do, all you have to do is walk over to the door and open it and let Jesus in, and you'll be saved. And R.C. Sproul comes to this, and he says, okay, let's look at that. That analogy actually assumes one thing. It assumes that you are alive and therefore able to actually get up, able to hear Jesus knocking, able to open the door. And he says that's not what Scripture says. Because Scripture says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, that we're hostile to God, and that in the flesh we cannot please God, and that we are without hope. He actually, he changes that analogy a little bit and says it's more like Jesus is breaking down the door and then resuscitating them. And so, on our own, we are without hope. And that makes sense of some of the verses uh, 22 and 23 when God says it, that it's not for their sake. You know, there's nothing in them to warrant this. There's nothing special about them. There's nothing good in them. There's nothing that they have done that would actually move him to do this. God must act, but why? Why? You know, though he loves his people, and he does, you know, he says that again and again. He loves them just because of the great love with which he loves them. That's not why he's acting. He acts for his holy name. Now, this is actually a comfort, or it should be for us. I mean, it, it seems kind of stark to us and a reproach, and it is. But at the same time, you know, if he was acting... Uh, for anything in them, if he was acting merely because he loved them, there would always be the question, well, what if, what if for whatever reason he didn't love us anymore? And yet, 
when he's acting for his holy name, we can always be sure, certain, that he will love and glorify his own name. And so that provides us a little bit of comfort that that is why he's acting. And so though he profaned, though they profaned his name among the nations, it comes down to this. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the God of the covenants. He's the God that agreed that he was going to save the world and entered into that agreement and said that he would guarantee it. And thus, he will vindicate his name because he will be a covenant-keeping God. So, that's kind of the necessity of it, and it all comes back to sin and how much sin has affected us. God's people are spiritually dead, and to vindicate his holy name and fulfill his covenant, they need to be spiritually reborn. They need regeneration. So, what happens in regeneration? What does the rebirth entail? Um, And how does God describe it? Let's go again back to the text, starting in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, the first thing that we notice that just jumps off the page is that it's God that's doing this. How many times did he say, I'm doing this in that? I didn't, I didn't count because it's multiple times every line. It is God that is doing this. He claims credit. You know, he said that he is the one that must act because he is the only one that can do it. You know, regeneration, you know, I'm going to throw some theological buzzwords at you. They're $5 words. You can pay me later. He throws out, you know, this is a sovereign, monergistic work of God. What does monergistic mean? It means that it's something that only he does. We have no participation in it. The people that he's talking to are completely passive. They have to be because they're dead. They can't respond just like we learned last week. No, he is the one who acts. And he is the sovereign one that does it, the one that is able to do it. And this is different from, say, the Catholic view. The Catholic view is that regeneration happens at baptism. Or the Arminian view, which is not monergism but synergism, that God does his part but we do ours in our response. No, this is the Reformed view that it is a monergistic work. It's something that only God does because only he can do it. We are completely, utterly unable to. Next, he says that he will cleanse them. 
This is verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. Now, like I said before, there are many things in the Old Testament that make people spiritually unclean. And whenever they're unclean, they can't go into the presence of God. But one of the main ways to get over that uncleanness, to be cleansed, is to be washed with water in the Old Testament, to be sprinkled clean. We see that in Leviticus 15. I won't read it because um, it's Leviticus. But, you know, they weren't fit to be in his presence. And yet, he has promised now to make them fit to be in his presence. And it's not just being ritually unclean that he's cleansing them. He's cleansing them from all of their idols. You know, all of these heart idols that they have that have broken in and taken a hold of them because of their depravity, because of their sin. And, you know, I've been in my personal devotions reading through First uh, and Second Kings recently. And one of the refrains, whenever you get to uh, a new king of Judah, you know, you're wrapping up one king and getting to a new king, the refrain is, you know, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he left the idols in the high places. And it happens again and again and again. And God is promising to deal with that. And if you remember back when I was talking in Zechariah, you know, we have this picture in Ezekiel that we're not going to read, but it's, it's in chapter 10. And people have, like the priests themselves, have set up idols in the temple. That's how pervasive their idol worship was. They've set up secret idols. They've set up public idols. And God is saying that he is going to cleanse them of them. Not only their heart idols, but also their actual idols. They will be put to rest. And then he says that he's going to give them a new heart. This is verse 26. He says, and I will give you a new heart. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So, it's a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. You know, the stony heart is a dead heart. It's a heart that can't beat. It can't feel. It can't love. It's constantly at war with God. And the heart of flesh means that they will be able to feel. They will be able to feel his love. They'll be able to love him back. You know, in the Hebrew mind, a lot of times we, we hear that the heart is the seat of all the desires, seat of all the affections. And the reason why people go off into sin is because they've set their hearts on evil things instead of setting their heart on the Lord. And the reason they do that is because they're spiritually dead. And yet, God has promised to give them a new heart, give them new desires, Desires for what is good and true. Desires for what he desires. And along with this new heart comes this feeling of shame. You know, I, I know that when we got to the end of the passage, you, you heard that. This is 
verse 31 and 32. You know, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. You know, in our modern day, a lot of times whenever we think of shame, we think of that as a bad thing. But that's not how it's actually used in the text here. In the text, what are they feeling shame over? They're feeling shame over something they've never felt shame for before. They're feeling guilt over something that they've never felt guilty over before. About their sin. They're actually being gifted a new heart, and because they're gifted that new heart, they respond with remorse and regret because of their sin, not because of the consequences of it, not just because they're in exile, but because of their sin and because it has damaged them and it has damaged their relationship with God. And in the passage, this is it's kind of obscured but this is actually a good thing because it's a sign of new life. And then he says that he's going to give them a new spirit. This is verse 27. He says, and I will put a, my spirit, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You know, God's spirit is within you. God's spirit, he promises to them and he says that you will be able now to obey the law. You'll be able and careful to obey it. I'm going to actually make that desirable to you by giving you a new heart, and I'm going to empower you to do that by giving you my spirit. And another thing that we see here is that this regeneration, it's not like, it's not a process that happens. It's not that God is turning your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. No, it is immediate. It is immediate and instantaneous because he doesn't say, I'm going to turn your heart, your stony heart, into a heart of flesh. He says, I'm going to take out your stone heart and give you a heart of flesh. It is an exchange. It happens in a moment. You know, this kind of makes it a little mysterious. You know, people... Oftentimes, they don't know when they were saved. They don't know, they can't pinpoint when their regeneration happened. It's a very mysterious thing. And, you know, we know that. Abraham Kuyper, commenting on the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, says this, Christ can be seen and heard. Once men's hands could even handle the word of life. But the Holy Spirit is entirely different. Of him, nothing appears in visible form. He never steps out of the intangible void. Hovering, undefined, incomprehensible, he remains a mystery. He is as the wind. We hear its sound, but cannot tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. Eye cannot see him, ear cannot hear him, much less the hands handle him. There are indeed symbolic signs and appearances, a dove, tongues of fire, the sound of rushing, mighty wind, a breathing from the holy lips of Jesus, a laying on of hands, a speaking with foreign tongues. But all of this, but of all of this, nothing remains. Nothing lingers behind, not even the trace of a footprint. And Sproul, picking up this quote and commenting on it, says, in short, 
the Spirit is mysterious because He is invisible. And His work of regeneration is mysterious for the same reason. No one can see what God is doing in someone else's soul. That's why we're warned in Scripture that while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Regeneration is a spiritual reality that takes place inside a person, transforming that person. But it is invisible, just like the wind. It's mysterious. The gospel writer John, you know, which Abraham Kuyper was kind of referencing here when uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he makes the same point. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so it's mysterious. But it's also permanent. It is a permanent change. It's not, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and maybe if you keep your life clean, it'll stay a heart of flesh. No, that's not it. I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And we hear in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you, that is, the beginning of the work is regeneration. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We have that promise, and so we know that the change, whenever it happens, is a permanent change. And so, what are the implications of this? What are the implications of regeneration, of the rebirth? You know, how does this work out in our lives? Well, if you look at uh, the Sinclair Ferguson quote that's in your bulletin, Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Holy Spirit, which is top-notch and amazing, if you haven't read it, borrow it from me, um, it, it can change your life. Um, Ferguson says, the Holy Spirit works in regeneration in order to unite us to Christ through faith. The goal of his activity is transformation into the likeness of Christ. In a word for the New Testament, sanctification, or holiness, or Christ-likeness. Or, as various theologians throughout history of the church have described it, Christiformity. Set within the context of justification, it is the growth of the seed of regeneration and the outworking of the union with Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot in there. What is he saying? He pictures regeneration here as a seed, a seed that is blossoming in the believer's life. A seed that is bringing about change throughout the believer. We, we talked about um, total depravity before. Regeneration has the same effect in a certain sense as total depravity. Total depravity is not that we are as depraved, are as sinful as we could possibly be, but that it pervades throughout our entire being. Regeneration does the same thing. It touches every fiber of our being. There is no part of us that is unchanged because of this. And so, he says that its purpose is to unite us with Christ. And how does regeneration do this? You know, it's through the twin saving graces of faith and repentance. You know, this is, 
This is part of what it means to have a heart of flesh, is that you have those twin saving graces, faith and repentance. You can't just have one or the other. They're two sides of the same coin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, when answering the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? It says, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone as He is offered in the gospel. When you have a heart of stone, you hear the gospel. And what happens? You hear the gospel, you hear the offer of salvation through Jesus, and it doesn't penetrate. It just bounces off again and again and again. You can't accept it. It won't take root. You have a stony heart. Think about Jesus in the parable of the sower with with the stony ground, the path. It just bounces off. No, it doesn't penetrate. But with a heart of flesh, you receive it, and your mind is enlightened to the salvation that's offered to you in the gospel. Your mind is enlightened to the work of Jesus on your behalf. And then it moves on in the next question, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth, you have to get the doth in there, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. That's a huge definition. You would do well to memorize it because that is repentance. You know, the heart of stone, you know, whenever you're disciplined, whenever you're judged, you might regret that you did the action because you, you received the punishment. You might regret how it affects you, but you only regret how it affects you. But with a heart of flesh, you have grief and hatred for your sin. And because of that grief and hatred and this knowledge that Jesus is freely offered to you to pay for your sin. You turn from your sin unto God. And this is a sovereign, monergistic work. It doesn't override your will, though. You know, that's one of the things that uh, people often question whenever they hear this, that it's God that's doing all the work. They say, well, you know, then I, I, I don't have a choice. And in one sense, that, that is true. But you still have your will. But the thing is, he doesn't override your will to do it. He renews your will. He gives you a new will with your new heart and new affections so that you come to Christ most freely you know, the song that we sung for our confession of sin, you know, right after that, the song of assurance, uh, it says that line kind of at the end, you know, now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. And that captures what it means, that God, when He comes in and He regenerates you, when He gives you that rebirth, you freely choose His ways. You respond in faith and repentance. And... As regeneration blossoms up through faith and repentance, what are, how are we justified? Romans 3 says that we are justified through faith in Christ. 
And so we're justified before God as an outworking of the regeneration that he has performed in our hearts. Not only that, we're adopted into his family where he's given us a spirit, his spirit, who dwells within us, a spirit that <clears throat> cries out with our spirit, Abba, Father. We know that we're children of God and that we are being conformed to the image of Christ and sanctification. This is all an outflow of our regeneration. And what was impossible before regeneration becomes possible. And not just possible. It's not a mere possibility that you have to lay hold of. No, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And he's making us ready and able at all points to live for Christ. So, that's how regeneration works itself out in our lives. And just as sin, like I said, permeates into all parts of our lives, our regeneration permeates into all parts of our lives. Regeneration touches every fiber of our being. And so what does that mean for you? What does that mean for us? Well, the first question is, have you been reborn? We can't, we can't say what it means for you until we answer that question. How can you tell if you've been reborn? It's actually pretty easy. Do you love Jesus? Because if you don't love Jesus, if you just kind of like him a little bit, or if, you know, maybe he does things that offend you and you really don't like him at all, then you don't actually have a new heart because a new heart automatically translates into a love for Jesus because a new heart translates into faith and repentance and a turning to Jesus for salvation. Another thing that you can look at is, do you actually hate your sin? Or you ju do you just hate the consequences? Do you actually mourn for your sin? If you do, you're regenerate. You feel that holy shame that God talks about in this passage. But if you answer no, then again, you don't have that rebirth. If all you are, if all you're responding to is, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to do that again because it, it worked out badly for me. If that's all, then no. That's not a sign that you are reborn. And so you have to ask yourself that. But what do you do if you actually ask that question and you don't think that you're reborn and that troubles you? Well, you ask the Lord. You ask the Lord to come and give you that heart of flesh, to exchange that heart of stone. And the fact that you're hearing his call at all, the fact that you would be moved to pray for that, that is a sign that he is already at work preparing you to do that. And so have great confidence in it. But, you know, if the answer is yes, if, if, if you say, yes, I have been reborn, I am regenerate, I have a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, you should rejoice. You know, and you have great confidence in God and know that you did nothing for it. And because you did nothing for it, you can't lose it. You can't lose your regeneration. You can't lose your faith. Because it is Jesus who has claimed you. It is Jesus who has paid the price for you. 
It is Jesus who has called you to himself, and it's he that you're responding to. And you, you have received his spirit. And God who started that good work in you will bring it to completion. And this is regardless of the sin that you feel, regardless of the sin that you have. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I sometimes quote John MacArthur on, I, I don't quote him very often, but he says when he, you know, he's asked, you know, do you actually think that, you know, you won't sin anymore? Or do you think that as you live the Christian life, you'll sin less? And he says, well, yeah. You will sin less as you live the Christian life. The more and more you're conformed to, to Christ, the more and more you will follow after him, and the less and less you, that you'll sin. But the worse you'll feel about it when you do. And that rings so true. We see that in Paul as we travel the progression of his letters, that he starts out as a sinner, and then he goes to the chief of all sinners, one who's unworthy to be called an apostle. And yet his love for Christ at every point grows and grows and grows and grows. And so, that's an amazing thing to realize, that as you feel your sin, that's a sign. That's a sign that God is at work within you, and you have that promise that he who began it will complete it. When you come under temptation from Satan, you can actually respond to him. Satan, I am a new creation. I have nothing to do with that. And I have God's spirit living in me. And because I have God's spirit living in me, I don't have to listen to you. No, I will listen to my Savior. I will listen to Christ. And when you do fall, you'll be repenting quickly, early, and earnestly. Not because you fear losing your salvation, but because you want to be fully restored to that intimate fellowship with Christ. And so you know that the end result depends not on yourself, it depends on God, depends on Jesus and his work that he did on the cross. And he paid for all of your sins. And he clothed you in his righteousness just like we saw him clothe Zechariah. You bear your filthy garments no longer. Instead, you stand before God in the spotless raiment of Christ with his righteousness. And though you were dead, you have been made alive. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Lord, you are the one who brings to completion what you start. We praise you for that. You are the great covenant-keeping God who acts to vindicate your holy name. And that gives us confidence in you because we know that you are unchanging and unswerving in your design. Lord, we know that you love us with the great love with which you love us. And that's the only reason because there's nothing good in ourselves. But Lord, we, we ask that you let us rejoice in that. Build our confidence in our Savior. Direct our eyes to Jesus. 
so that as we live, as we walk, we become more and more conformed to his image. That we be able to drop the old man, wage war against him when we need to, but know that we are safe and secure in the hands of our Savior at all times. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.